Well, thank you, worship team, for leading us this morning. And thank you, Rico, for sharing. Some of you uh, likely don't know that Rico and I were students together at ABC, and I saw this, um, this vision and this passion grow from a little seed to what it is today. We're, we're so proud of you, Rico. Mandy, I know she's got the kids out there right now, but uh, so much of, of your life comes out in this passage. That's a beautiful thing that God aligned this. I want to begin with a word of prayer this morning and, and we'll dive in. God, as we, uh, as we continue to seek you in your word, as we tune our hearts, our ears, as we adjust our eyes, as we try to look through the lens of your scripture to see uh, where you are and what you're up to in this world, we humbly confess that we are distracted. We are too busy. That we are preoccupied with our own interests. And so we invite you, as scary as that is today, to reorient us to you. To your call on each of our lives. To your, your calling on this church body. Not just here, but with our partners around the globe. Especially this morning, we think of Lifeline and the Heart for Home campus. In your son's name, we pray. Amen. Fritz was a hardened criminal. Serving a very long sentence in prison. But Fritz had stolen a metal spoon from the cafeteria. You know where this is going. And slowly, but surely, day by day, Fritz had been secretly carving out and tunneling out of his cell. Until one day, he thought he saw light at the end of the tunnel. And so very quickly and very excitedly, Fritz kept digging and digging and digging. And sure enough, out popped Fritz in bright daylight, way, way away from the prison, in fact, so far away from the prison that he popped up in the middle of a daycare playground. Overwhelmed, he couldn't contain himself. I'm free! I'm, I'm free! I can't believe it! I'm free! Hey, everybody, I'm free! So what? Said the kid next to him. I'm four. <laughs> it's really bad. Sometimes you, you don't realize how bad the joke is until you tell it. Uh, so Paul's in prison, right? Uh, this is our second week in the sermon series, Joyful, where we're looking at this, this short little letter that Paul writes to the church in Philippi. The Philippian letter, or sometimes we call it a book in the New Testament. It's only four short chapters. Last week we, um, we sort of gave some background and context of what is this letter about? Where, what is Paul doing? Where is Paul? Where is Philippi? What's going on? And then we looked at just the, the opening greeting of the passage. And I gave you this really overly simplistic sort of outline of the letter of Philippians. And uh, it looks like this. The first half of chapter 1 was Paul's greeting. Really, it was his thank you. Thank you. Thank you for being partners with me in this ministry. Thank you for participating. Thank you for, for giving me these gifts. Thank you for always believing me when, when things were going well, when the gospel was being preached, and even now while I'm in chains. We said it was sort of a, a standard part of ancient letters 
to write this greeting and this thank you. But Paul more than expands it, doesn't he? He makes it his own. So the next part is also a standard part of an ancient letter. Usually Roman letters, and we have hundreds of examples of this, would start off with that greeting, right? Greetings to you. And then they would give a little update. Here's how it is with me. Not, by the way, dissimilar to exactly what Rico did this morning. Greetings. I bring you greetings from Haiti, from the churches, from the mission. Here's how it is with us. Here's what's going on. And just like Paul did last week, kind of expanding and making this this standard part of the letter his own, he's going to do the same thing today. In fact, he's really going to sort of flip on its head the personal update that we would normally hear. And so he actually starts it the exact same way. Again, this is almost a a standard line in ancient letters that people would use. They would say, uh, greetings to you, and then they would say, now I want you to know. And all these examples we have of ancient letters say, now I want you to know what's going on with me. And Paul begins this way. Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it's become clear throughout the whole palace guard and everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of my brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. And so uh, there's three passages of Scripture we're going to read this morning. We're going to read through the rest of chapter 1, verse 12, all the way to 26, right at the end. This passage, Paul is being very clear, look, Here's how it is with me. I'm in chains. But don't worry, because the gospel isn't. I'm in chains, but the gospel can never be put in chains. It's almost like in this first section, and bear with me on this example here, all right? It's almost like a little bit of a, a politician, okay? You've got to be really careful with this. But you know how um, politicians, especially when they're campaigning, they always sort of are able to steer back a question to what they want to say, right? They have their talking points. They have their platform. They have their policies. They have their attacks on the opponent, whoever the opponent is. And so it doesn't matter what context the question is asked in. It doesn't, doesn't matter you know, where the question is. or It really doesn't matter who asks the question. It doesn't even matter what the question is most of the time, Right? They will find a way to steer it back to what they want to say. Now, sometimes that's a little bit disingenuous and maybe even slimy. Sorry if there's any politicians here. All right. We sort of get upset about that. It's like, oh, you're avoiding it. They asked you a direct question and you just answered what you wanted to answer. But in this case... It's the most endearing and genuine, most authentic thing that Paul could be doing in this letter. You see, he starts off, now I want you to know, here's how it is with me. But immediately he steers it back to, how is it with the gospel where I am? Because for Paul, nothing else compares to the importance of the advance of the gospel. It's all about Christ being preached. 
Paul uses his own update to drive us back to his joy. I think Rico said it well when he said, now enough about us. Right? Let's talk about what God is doing in Haiti. Through his life, the gospel is being spread. Paul says the the praetorian or the palace guards are hearing the good news of Jesus and and even other fellow fellow Christians, wherever he is, whether he's in Rome or he's in Caesarea or Ephesus, we're not really sure. Other fellow Christians in the city are, are emboldened because of my boldness. They're encouraged because of my courage to share the gospel even in chains. Why is this? Why is Paul so insistent on doing this even when he's in chains? Well, because Paul has experienced the grace and the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's no other explanation for this. That that something has so radically confronted him, so radically invaded his life, so radically taken over everything, every part of his life that, that he knows he can't help but share it. And share it with joy. So the palace guard has been drawn in to hear the message. Remember that, that theme of the letter that we talked about last week? How to be the people of God in a world that doesn't understand the Gospel? Think about this for a minute. Here's this Roman guard that's guarding this, I don't know, relatively obscure prisoner. And they hear this strange message of good news. A a different message. A message of a different king that is coming to them. And they could easily just sort of pass it off and say, well, this guy's crazy. But something is different. There's a joy that is welled up within this prisoner that it doesn't matter what his circumstances are, he can't help but share this good news. I'll tell you what they're thinking. This guy's weird. This guy is super weird, right? I mean, he, he shouldn't be joyful. He could be sentenced to death. Why does he have so much joy? Why is he, he insistent that even now when he's in prison, he's going to keep preaching the way he was the reason he was arrested. But it's not weird for Paul. And frankly, it it shouldn't be weird for us that no matter what our life circumstances are, no matter what is going on around us, the joy of the Gospel bubbles up. It comes out. It overwhelms us. So, uh, some of you know one of our congregation members, Sue. Sue, um, it's probably almost a month ago now, uh, broke her ankle in two different places. Pretty bad break. So for quite a while, Sue was at the Rocky View, getting it set and making sure that it was healing properly. Um, But at at her house, she has a lot of stairs. And so, while she's sort of on the, on the men, they decided that she should uh, go to Care West, which is just sort of up the hill from Rocky View Hospital. Now, if you know Sue, if you know Sue, you've probably got a hug from Sue in that lobby right out there. And if you know Sue, um, she is one of the most joyful people I have ever met in my life. When I say, you know, be encouraged by someone's courage and be emboldened by someone's boldness, um, every time I visit Sue... I'm encouraged and emboldened to share the gospel. 
First thing she said, first time I visited her when she moved up to Care West, she said, Lane, this is great. What? Foot in the cast, in the, in the chair. She's like, I have a whole other set of people that I get to share the gospel with. There's other nurses here. There's other doctors here. There's patients here that I can share the good news of Jesus Christ with. You see, every situation Sue is in, she sees it as an opportunity to share why she has joy. So I have to tell you just this one incident. A couple weeks ago, I went to visit Sue, and it was, um, it was after visiting hours. So they, sometimes they let clergy sort of sneak in. It was late, and it was dark. And pretty much all the patients at Care West at this point are in their rooms. So I went to Sue's room just to say hi and pray with her, and Sue's not there. Oh, okay. So I sort of start aimlessly wandering around, and I come to one of the lounges, and here is Sue in her chair, foot up in the cast, and she's sitting with this guy who's also in a chair. And this is like a, a burly dude. This guy's like twice Sue's size, but he has like half the limbs that she does. And he's got his giant beard, and he's got his trucker hat on, and he's all tatted up. And um, so I, I went over, and I, I met him, and I sat with him, and we visited for a little bit. And then he went off to his room. And uh, Sue said, isn't it wonderful that I get to share the good news of Jesus with all these people? I'm like, Sue, that's amazing. I said, this guy uh, you just struck up this friendship with and, and wanted to share the, the gospel? And she said, well, not exactly. I said, oh, what do you mean? She said, it was, um, it was sort of a transaction. Uh, he's down on his luck, and he's been uh, sort of complaining to everyone about how he's the victim of this, that, and the other thing. And he's been trying to tell his whole life story to everyone. So I told him, I'll listen to your life story if you listen to my testimony. And that's what she did. She listened to his whole life story, everything that this man said had gone wrong in his life, and then she said, let me tell you about how Jesus changed mine. Let's move on to verse 15. It is true, Paul says, that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition. Not sincerely. Supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. Because of this, I have joy. I will rejoice. So the situation gets worse, right? At first we're like, wow, well, you know, he's in, pra- in, in chains, but maybe it's not so bad. We know the Philippians have sent him some money, maybe some food, something like that. Maybe, you know, maybe it's like a white-collar prison, right? Maybe it's not too bad in there. Now we hear that it's not just that he's in chains, but there are other Christians who are preaching, and while they're preaching, they're slandering him. They're putting him down. It's sort of a bizarre passage. and we, we don't have all the information. We don't know exactly what's going on. But clearly there are opponents that are preaching the gospel out of envy or jealousy or selfish ambition, something like that. So let me, let me just make sure we clarify this. Uh, these other followers of Jesus don't seem to be teaching a false gospel. In chapter 3, Paul is going to transition and he's going to talk about false teachers. And he's not going to be polite. There's like words like evildoers and dogs and mutilators. 
That's how he's going to describe false teachers. That's not what's going on here. It's a little bit different. Clearly, they're wrong-headed, right? They're doing something out of selfish ambition that should never be done out of selfish ambition. So, their teaching is not not acceptable to Paul. It seems like he's saying, yeah, I mean, I guess they're, they're preaching the true gospel of grace. They're just doing it in a way that, well, is disagreeable. So it's not about the message, but about the motives Paul's concerned with here. Scott McKnight writes about ancient Rome. It's been said in ancient Rome, to be was all about being seen. So we, we don't know exactly what's going on. We don't know what is uh, up with these, these sort of other Christians who are jealously or enviously preaching the gospel of, of grace, but putting Paul down. But it seems like they're trying to lift themselves up, at the very least. So they're either doing it out of jealousy, or, or maybe they're embarrassed that he's in prison. Oh, Paul's such an embarrassment to, to the church, right? There he is languishing in prison. We, we don't want to be known with him. Oh, that's, that's not the kind of Christian we are, right? Either way, they're disparaging Paul, and Paul could care less. T.S. Eliot once wrote, the, the greatest treason is to do the right deed for the wrong reason. I don't think Paul agrees. I don't think he cares that they're doing it for the wrong reason. I think all he cares about is the message of grace. The gospel of Jesus Christ is being proclaimed. <clears throat> Both in his chains and these insincere preachers around him, clearly his circumstances are not ideal. It's not like Paul is saying, this is great. This is exactly what I wanted. This is the best case scenario. No, Paul is saying, hey, look, in spite of all this, the gospel is advancing. And that's all I really care about. So let me ask the same question I asked earlier. Is Christ preached in and through our lives, regardless, regardless of our circumstances? Is my joy in seeing the gospel advance so central and so powerful in my life that being falsely accused can't diminish it? Being physically in chains can't snuff it out. Does joy invade and overwhelm everything I do? Someone once said that your, your spiritual maturity can be directly measured by how little or how much it takes to steal your joy. How much does it take to steal your joy? Foot of snow? It's not that much. A missed appointment? A child who's struggling? Bad day at the office. Paul is locked away in chains. And those so-called Christians outside are slandering him. And his response is, I'll rejoice because the gospel is being preached.
He makes a shift sort of halfway through verse 18. How it is with us, how it is with me. Now he wants to talk a little bit about sort of future possibilities. It's one of the most um, self-revealing passages that Paul writes in all of Scripture. It's a really fascinating passage. It's filled with I's and me's and my's. We don't often get this kind of window into Paul's life. There's a certain amount of angst and turmoil that's, that's going on. In some ways, it's, it's almost like it's a, a bubbling up and bubbling over of, of Paul's heart. It's, it's a laying bare of his soul. It's appealing back the curtains on his life. It's, it's this thought experiment that he sort of lets himself go down this road and he lets the Philippians and us in to what he's thinking. We'll read it. It's a little bit long. It'll be on two slides here. He begins, Yes, and I will continue to rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. Now, what does he mean here? Deliverance? Does he mean sort of deliverance from prison, from chains? Or does he mean sort of that ultimate salvation deliverance? Maybe both. We're not exactly sure. He says, I eagerly expect. It's a very rare word in the original. I eagerly expect. In fact, the only other time Paul uses it is in Romans 8 when he's talking about the groaning of all creation. It groans to be redeemed by God. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or death. And then that famous line, for to me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Christ will be exalted in my body. You see, Paul understands worship. It's not simply what we profess with our mouths. But it's how we live. We are embodied beings. God created us this way. Everything He's doing, even when He is bound in chains, His body is preaching this good news to the world around Him. Here's the thought experiment. If I'm to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I don't know. I'm torn. Torn between the two. I desire to to depart, to be with Christ, which is better by far. But it's more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I'll remain. He's sort of resolved here. And I will continue with all of you, for your progress and joy, joy, joy in the faith. So that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. Much of our culture has this sort of underlying assumption about about how the world works. It's it's really a, a basic sort of equation a correlation of how things work in our world. It goes a little bit something like this. The kind of person you are will determine what happens to you. Paul is in chains. 
imprisoned. And those fellow believers outside, at least some of them, are besmirching him and his life. But we hold on to this, don't we? We, we sort of have this, even if, if it's not sort of uh, articulated for us, we have this understanding, this assumption that, that this is how the world operates. The kind of person I am will determine what happens to me. Now, piece of advice from a pastor. If you're um, trying to do some comfort and care for someone who's in a bad way, I don't suggest that you suggest to them that maybe they aren't the kind of person they think they are. That is not going to go over very well. That's an easy way to be unfriended, right? Hey, maybe all these bad things are happening because you're not such a great person. Not very nice, right? But it's not just that it's uncaring to say something like that. I actually think that it's biblically wrong. (laughs) You see, this assumption that we operate with, this correlation that the kind of person that I am, that's what will determine what will happen to me, is just not true biblically. Paul is in chains, and he's being slandered. So why do we uphold this equation? I think largely to sort of try to make sense of the world, try to make sense of the situation we're in. We, we tend to be a little bit obsessive and pick at that why scab, don't we? Or maybe that's just me. <laughs> I don't think so. I think a lot of us do that. Why... why why did this happen to me? How, how did I end up here? Why did this happen to this, happen to this? And oh, poor me. And all of that, by the way, is often sort of looking back. Interested in what led to this bad situation that I'm in. Great preacher of the last century, Fred Craddock, once wrote, There is no pain so sharp as an uninterpreted pain. No tragedy so heavy as one without meaning. What does he mean by that? It's this why question that bubbles up, right? That's why we ask the why question. Because we just want some sort of meaning. We we just want to interpret the pain so badly. And so we gotta we gotta look for the the cause, the causation. What what happened to get me here? Why did I end up in this situation? Here's what I find so fascinating about this section of scripture. Philippians 1. Paul gives no interpretation and no meaning to his pain and suffering. He could care less about the why. He he is not looking back at what events led to this terrible situation that he's in. But he is interested in the what question. What can God do with me what is God already preparing around me? What, what is God doing in the world that, that I get to take part in right here, right now, in this situation? You see, Paul isn't glibly promising the Philippians that, oh, don't worry, Philippians, everything will turn all, out all right in the end. All your problems will just go away. No, he's actually suggesting that the problems themselves might assist us in our Christian witness. That God has has prepared just this circumstance for me to further and advance His gospel in this world. 
Remember those other words of Paul in Romans 5? He says, not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings. Glory in our sufferings. Because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Paul has experienced the transformational grace of Jesus Christ. Friends, Paul is is not first and foremost interested in causation. He's interested in the cause of Jesus Christ. He's looking forward. He's going to make this so much more explicit in chapter 3. I'm forgetting what lies behind. I'm pressing on to what lies ahead of me. I strain to receive the prize for which God, through Christ Jesus, is calling me heavenward. Now, it doesn't mean we bury the past. It doesn't mean we ignore trauma or hurt, addictive patterns or mistakes that we've made. In fact, I... I know in my own life that being honest with my own bad decisions that have led me to a bad place is an important step. It's a part of confession. Being courageous enough to deal with past trauma is essential in bringing healing to our lives. That's not, that's not what I'm suggesting, is doing away with that. What I am suggesting is, is the amount of time and energy spent on trying to identify exactly how we ended up where we ended up. It's just not Paul's primary concern. His primary concern is how can the gospel be advanced now? Where I am. Where God has brought me. The drive within him to bring glory to God's name is so strong that his chains are seen as an occasion to further the mission, the cause, where God has placed him. And again, this this piece is going to sort of set the tone for what joy is and what joy looks like for the rest of the letter. This insistence. Philippians, I think, is, is perhaps the most of all of Paul's writings in the New Testament. The most insistent, the most preoccupied, the most obsessed with what, what can we do to help partner and participate in the gospel of Jesus Christ right where we are? What is my part to play in this mission? That's the meaning. That's the interpretation that Paul's interested in. So, this part of the letter. How is it with you, Paul? (laughs) He can't help himself. Everything gets directed back. When you ask Paul, how is it with you? What he wants to answer is, how is it with the advancement of the gospel where I am? Where God has put me right now. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote these famous words in his book, The Cost of Discipleship. When Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and die. And of course, Bonhoeffer was martyred at the hands of the Nazis in the Second World War. He lived this out. And and I realize that for most of us, this sort of call on our life is going to remain at that metaphorical level. That uh, somehow we will try to embody and live this out and worship in such a way that, that joy overwhelms us and overflows from our life so that when someone asks, how is it with you, we naturally default to how is it with the advancement of the gospel where I am. That's how it is with me. Matthew sixteen twenty eight. 
25 and 26, Jesus says, For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? What can anyone give in exchange for their soul? The truth is, even even if it stays at that metaphorical level for most of our lives, that we, we aren't necessarily maybe heading to martyrdom, but that we're trying to live out this faith in such a way that that how it is with us is aligned with how it is with the advancement of the gospel. Even if it stays at that metaphorical level, for all of us, there will come a day when we know that we are facing the end, when death is before us. And I'll tell you, in my pastoral experience, It's those people who have tried to live that out to the most extreme, to the most full, so that that their lives overflow with this joy to spread the gospel, who when they do come to that day, have the same inner turmoil that Paul does. I want to depart. I want to be with him in glory. I can't wait for eternity. I get to be with God. And yet, and yet I know if, if He has me remain, I know if, if, if I get through this, I know if, if I heal, I know if I recover, that, that He has something more for me prepared. That there is meaning in that. That He has a call on my life. That He has a mission for each and every one of us. The former is better, but I will joyfully serve the cause until that day arrives. So you've been hearing a lot about Iran in the news lately. And Haiti, for that matter. There's this really interesting thing that's going on in Iran. I I don't pretend to know all the sort of political situation and and the the marches and the sort of rebellion that is going against the government right now. But I do know for the last about five years... Uh, Leaders of churches in the West have been hearing stories of how many conversions to the Christian faith are going on in Iran right now. And so the story goes something like this, that, that for several decades, there's been this seed of Christian leaders in this country. If you're not aware, uh, pretty much all evangelism is outlawed in Iran. It's an Islamic state. And yet, uh, right from the 80s, we've heard these stories of, of indigenous Christian leaders in this country who are sharing the gospel, spreading the good news, joyfully. And over the last years, we've heard of this sort of exponential picking up of conversions, more and more conversions. And because there's not many missionaries in Iran, as in Western world missionaries, we're not really sure what that looks like. And missiologists have talked about uh, hearing these stories coming out of Iran, people who have left Iran saying, oh yeah, there's more and more Christians, there's more and more churches. But we never really knew um, how many. And just recently, a, a secular Dutch research company did a survey in Iran. They were let in, do a demographic survey of religious adherence. They're suggesting that there's probably around a million Christians in Iran right now, which, by the way, is actually probably a little bit higher than the missionaries were thinking. 
That's almost 2% of the population in Iran. How did this happen? How did we get there in a country that is completely closed off, where you can be put in chains for preaching the gospel? I think it's, it's the faithful and joyful witness of Christians over the last several decades. I want to read for you just a little piece of one. Mehdi Dabaj was imprisoned in 1984. Good year. 1984, he was imprisoned on charges of apostasy. He converted from Islam to Christianity. Dabaj was sentenced to death for treason. Uh, but the government decided they wanted him to languish in prison. They wanted to sort of make an example of him. They wanted him to reconvert to Islam. And so they beat him regularly. They tortured him over the months he was in prison. They put him in solitary confinement, repeatedly over and over and over again, asking him to apostatize, to turn back to Islam. The Islamic government was hoping a steady dose of torture and solitary confinement would have him reconsider before his trial. Instead, at his defense, Dabaj gave one of the most incredible professions of faith I've ever read. When I read it, this passage came to mind. You see, I think a part of Dabaj's uh, defense was actually that, that he knew Scripture so well, he was so hungry for Scripture that, that he had completely internalized it. And the Apostle Paul just comes out without him even trying. He says, Jesus Christ, remember, on trial for death. Jesus Christ is our Savior. He's the Son of God. To know Him means to know eternal life. I, a useless sinner, have believed in His beloved person and all His words and miracles recorded in the Gospel. And I have committed my life into His hands. Now I want you to hear the joy in these last lines. Dabaj says, Life for me is an opportunity to serve Him. And death is a better opportunity to be with Christ. Therefore, I'm not only satisfied to be in prison for the honor of His holy name, but I am ready to give my life for the sake of Jesus, my Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we are so comfortable. And yet we continue to think first of ourselves, not even just of our own needs, but our own wants. Your gospel often doesn't come first in our lives. So this morning, we confess that to you. We acknowledge that joy has been stolen from us so easily because we are self-centered. We want so badly to live a life with such a firm and resolute calling as the Apostle Paul. To know that you have a mission for us. To know that you have prepared us right where we are, no matter what circumstances we're in, 
to give our life for the advancement of your gospel. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.